Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds. I'm Clay Groves, your host today of the podcast. It's three o'clock in the morning. I just got back from Folly Beach, South Carolina. So, actually, I got back last night, but I'm tired and didn't feel like recording. So, got up early to make the show to you. Um, thank you so much for listening. And I'm sorry about the quiet talk. I don't want to wake up my family. Uh, but first, got back from Folly Beach, South Carolina been there for a full week not counting the driving days um and fished every single day in the ocean in the folly river and i caught tons of little little fish um i still can't figure out how to catch a big fish but we'll, we'll get there um i'm working on it uh, everything seems to eat shrimp down there um including the people some great great food uh, but I caught croakers, ocean perch, which I'm not convinced is the right species name, uh, a handful of bluefish, and a tiny, tiny black sea bass. And I, actually, I kayak fished a lot. I paddled out to a little sailboat that was sunk, and all you can see was the mast. And I tied off to that, and I was jigging around that, thinking that'd be a great place to uh, to catch fish. And I did, but nothing, nothing super good. But had a great time, and, and if you haven't been to South Carolina to go fishing, you should totally go there. Um, I'll make it part of my regular uh, vacationing routines, um, but, but way, way fun. But while I was there, I bumped into um, a couple of actors. Um, my my in-laws, who I stay with, their neighbors are filmmakers, and they are Chris Weatherhead and Clarence Felder. Now, Chris Weatherhead was born, this is her bio from internet movie database she's born and raised in california trained with the brewster mason of royal shakespeare company in uc irvine and in london so she's fancy pants uh she's been in new york and all over the place um she married um actor clarence felder uh, but she's been in tons of like movies and tv shows uh and she now produces and writes plays in south carolina um and then Clarence Felder, her husband, uh, who is from South Carolina, has been in tons of like Broadway productions. He even, even uh, been, acted with Christopher Walken once. So that's that's really kind of cool. He's best known for like uh, uh, doing all these, doing like Angel Camouflage, Republic Pete, All for Liberty, all these kind of like uh, historical things. But he's been in the last Boy Scout. Uh, he was on A Nightmare on Elm Street number five. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> it's been all kinds of cool stuff, but these really interesting people and they had fish stories to tell. And you know me, I can't walk away from a fish story. So here are Clarence Felder and Chris Weatherhead. All right, ClayGrovesFishNerds.com, hanging out here at Folly Beach at the beautiful Folly River, and we've been watching dolphins all yeah, morning. Yeah, sure have. Yeah, they, it's amazing. And we've been here for almost 20 years, and our front porch here, as you see, we enjoy the coffee and the dolphin out there. And I'm telling you, that is the longest session I have ever seen here. And that, and that voice you heard, that is <laughs> that's Clarence Felder, world-famous actor. And we're here with uh, Chris Weatherhead. Good morning. Good morning. And we just got back two nights ago. We saw your world premiere of your movie. So congratulations. Yes. And that, what was the name of that movie again? John Lawrence War. It's about a revolutionary war lost hero here in Charleston. 
And congratulations on getting that made. That started off as a play, right? And then it became yes, became a movie? Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. it did. Um, we were very pleased. And it seemed... It's interesting. We had seen a lot of cuts of the movie on a smaller screen. But it was really nice to see it on the big screen. Something really happens to it. One of the actors said that that night. Said, my goodness, what a difference when you get it up on the big screen. Yeah. And your hope is to sell that to like Discovery or some other kind of... Uh, yes, it was show. really conceived and, and produced and directed to be a television film. So uh, anybody that is broadcasting historical or cultural content, we hope, will be interested in a lost Revolutionary War hero well, we have all we have some history nerds who listen to the show. We have friends who make a podcast called Ben Franklin's World, which is an American oh, history podcast. Yeah. What a guy, Ben Franklin! Amazing. Well, you see, our hero John Lawrence was in Paris when Ben Franklin was there. It was really John that got the king to give us all that stuff. It wasn't Ben. <laughs> but Ben gets all the credit. But we're here to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's always the truth. But, but we do a fishing podcast, so we need to yeah. bring it back in. And Clarence, yeah. you had a fish story. Well, look, I tell you, I was uh, when I was growing up. I'm an South Carolina native. I was born and brought up in a little town called St. Matthews in Calhoun County here in South Carolina. And I, by the way, I love the low country down here. This is gorgeous. This is the best place to be, I it's think, beautiful. ever. Um, and I say that after 20 some years in New York City, like we were talking about, and also in LA, uh, that was a wonderful time. I enjoyed all of that. But getting back here home is amazing. And that brings me to Edisto Island on Edisto Beach. And it turns out that my grandfather in the 1930s built a house down on the beach at Edisto Island. And he had six sons and then my mother, who was not only the only girl out of seven children, but she was the youngest too. So you can imagine how spoiled she was. But we would go every summer and spend the summers at Edisto Beach on that front beach house that my grandfather had built. And they called it the Farmer's Beach because a lot of farmers in South Carolina would go down and build that. Well, part of what we would do finally is it got interesting. We would either fish with hand lines. That was what I really enjoyed That's as totally a boy. Oh, and you get that cord and you make the things and put them together and there'd be two hooks, top hook and a bottom hook, I remember oh. that. And then this lead sinker that looked kind of like a pyramid, sort of, you put on it to keep it in. And in those days, shrimp were the cheapest things you could get, so we used shrimp for bait. Of course, <laughs> nowadays, <laughs> it's not so. And we put that shrimp on there, and usually, we would rent a rowboat, because we didn't have motors, particularly, and certainly our... A lot of people don't know. They can't see you, Clarence. They don't know how yeah. old you were, but we, <laughs> motors weren't invented when you were a kid. Is that what well, you're no, saying? They were, they were invented, but my family my family was too cheap <laughs> to use. Well, you got two good arms, you know, you rowboat. Of course, if you got caught in the tide in a tide creek, <laughs> you were in trouble just keeping straight. But anyway, we were out. We would go out, and I would throw over the hand line and you'd feel is something electric about that boom when the fish or creature hits it. And sometimes it wasn't a fish. Sometimes oh, yeah. it was like a stingray 
And that was amazing feeling too, because that thing would glide through the water like it was flying. And I, I guess it was. And we would catch, I guess some of the strangest looking creatures we caught were like, they, I don't know, we called them toadfish or dogfish. Some of the ugliest looking things God ever made would be on the end of that line. And then we would occasionally, even we would catch little hammerhead sharks. They'd be about two, two and a half feet long, but with that very distinctive little two eyes coming out of there. And what amazed me quite often about that was that these creatures, you you could catch them and if you didn't keep them in the boat with you or do something like that, if you just throw them back, they'd hit the, hit it again. It's like we were talking about that. What? Why would a fish do that? You know? Because fish aren't smart. <laughs> I guess they're not. But oh, oh, but I got to tell you, I got to tell you, when I was eleven years old, it became the fashion with us and the really accustomed to um, take a seine net out. And it would it was anywhere from maybe about 100, 120 feet long or something, just rectangular seine net. And we'd hold up the back end from that engine, just walk it in to shore and get whatever bounty was in it. Well, one day they put me, not 11 years old, and there were like seven or eight adult guys out there. But they put me next to this guy who was, I guess, in his late 30s, Mr. Culclasure. And Mr. Culclasure couldn't swim. But they put us all the way out into the deepest part, right? Well, we're, we had this thing and we were forming that crescent shape and walking it in. And the next thing you know, something really big hits the net. <laughs> something really big and that thing whoom, and it went through when we looked at the hole later i guess it was about two and a half three feet across oh. like that and it was like butter i mean it didn't even slow it down but whoom, we knew and then all the guys started running big men to get out you know to get away <laughs> and they left me and mr culcleger out there bobbing up and down and they were literally saying that old thing about save yourself come on run out and we finally we finally did get in but nobody could determine what the thing was but it seemed to me it was probably a pretty good sized shark because we had a lot of sharks in front of the house and there was no dolphin fin visible or anything it had to be a shark but it just right there. Well, that was some of the best eating I've ever enjoyed was you take the fish, usually it'd be croakers, maybe whitings, we caught, but they were, that's white fish. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe occasionally if we were lucky, spot bass or something like that. Fix them up, deep fat fry them immediately and have them with potatoes. And that, oh, that was great eating. Anyway, that is one of the memories I have about fishing at Edisto Beach. That's a that's a great story. And it it reminds me of just like you know, times haven't really changed as far as fishing goes. Like what you what your what your family did to you out there, it was not different than I would do with my girls. It's is you let them you let them you let them you build character. Oh well you were asking about maybe a fish story um in 
the Truckee Valley in California, which was owned by my family at the time. My aunt, Ada, who was a mountain woman, she would fish for trout in that big stream going through the valley. And I was probably about nine. And I wanted to catch a trout because I heard they were so beautiful and had all the different colors. But she said, well, if you catch it, you have to clean it, you know, the old saw. So I said, well, I, I will. I'll do that. So she taught me how to kind of trick the fish into, you know, and actually I got one that was about maybe 10, 12 inches. It was it was eating size anyway. So I learned how to uh, clean it and we ate it. And so I was thrilled because she was pretty famous in our family as a mountain woman. And if if you got her respect, you you were something special. It's a total win. Yes, yes. I was very grateful that I – I've never forgotten that I caught a trout in the Truckee River. Truckee. Where is the Truckee River? It's north of Lake Tahoe. It is one of the most beautiful valleys. The, the Truckee Valley is famous in the world for being one of the most beautiful. And our family did sell it eventually. But um, it, it, was, it was a great place to go and spend part of my summer. Fantastic. Well, uh, Clarence and Chris, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out more about your films and your projects and things you're working on if they want to check it out? Our history nerd fans may really want to check out what you're doing. Well, we are a professional theater and film company, but we do focus on great, great history and great literature. So if they went to www.actorstheaterofsc. Dot .org we are a nonprofit so it's actors theater with a tre uh, of sc.org perfect and we'll put links up at fishners.com with photos and stuff and thank oh, you great. so much for time well thank you for and you bringing your family to see the movie it was a great fun having you here yeah. and it's great fun watching y'all have and enjoy this the wonderful lessons of nature out here right next door to us we're always happy when you come in well, i don't know if you saw or not we caught about 15 crab this morning <laughs> <laughs> no oh, i didn't wow. see that yeah. No. yeah so we're having uh, crab cakes tonight it's going to be fantastic so thank you <laughs> Yeah, sure. All right. Well, that was totally fun. And by the way, if you want to support the Fish Nerds, uh, our show is funded by you, our listeners. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Fish Nerds and help us crowdfund this show. We're hoping that listeners will all donate a dollar an episode. If all of our listeners would do that, we would not need to search for advertising for the show. Currently, our show is funded by our listeners, which means that our basic expenses are paid for, but things like travel, things like buying new equipment, all that stuff isn't being paid for yet. And we need to, we need to upgrade all of our stuff. So keeping that money coming in makes a big difference and it saves us from having to like, you know, beg for money from advertisers. So we'd rather beg from you guys. So give us a dollar a show, help us crowdfund this. Also, if you are in the Virginia Beach area on Thursday, May 25th. The Fish Nerds are going to be at the Virginia Aquarium at the Sensible Seafood Festival. They're flying me down. I'm going to be doing some presentations all week at the aquarium, and then I get to judge the Seafood Festival. The Sensible Seafood Fest is held at the Virginia Aquarium's 
Bay and Ocean Pavilion. It features samples of sustainable seafood options created by talented local chefs, 21 and older event. Um, and, and you should totally, totally go uh, to that and come see me. And you can get more information at virginiaaquarium.com. And of course, links at fishnerds.com will be there. Okay, FN Book Club fans, uh, May's book club is going to be John Garrick. His John Garrick's new voice, uh, new voice, John Garrick's new book, A Fly Rod of Your Own. So if you're reading along, try and get a copy of that book. And we're actually, I think we're going to have John Garrick on the show. We're still working on those details. But uh, and we'll be giving some of these away um, in upcoming shows. If you don't know who John Garrick is, um, he is considered the voice of the common angler and a member of the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. He brings a sharp sense of humor and keen eye for observation to the fishing life and, for that matter, life in general. So you should totally check out that book and then join the discussion with us next month on Facebook. All right, Hugo Medeiros is back with his segment, Killing Fish and Time with Hugo. Hugo is our resident seagull, and today he has prepared a culinary delight, a fish I rarely eat, the California trout or rainbow. We love Hugo. Hello, Fish Nerd community. Hugo Medeiros here reporting from Massachusetts. I'm the fishing correspondent for the Fish Nerds. Check us out at fishnerds.com. So spring has finally arrived here in New England and Massachusetts, my state. We had a long, tough winter, not much ice fishing, took a long time for uh, us to get the good weather and conditions to get out there and start fishing. But here we are and they have started uh, stocking uh, the rainbow trout and brown trout and other trout in the local lakes and ponds. And finally I got to get out there and uh, do some fishing. Just hooked into uh, a couple beautiful uh, little rainbow trout and I'm about to uh, clean these or dress these and get them ready uh, to cook them up. Uh, we'll have the recipe posted online as well. Still haven't decided how I'm going to cook them. I think I might just um, gut them out and cook them uh, whole on the grill with some nice seasonings. But I'm going to dig into them now, get these all prepped and ready to go. And then we'll uh, come back and continue with uh, the next step and how I'm going to decide to uh, season these up. These are fun to catch. Uh, I can catch them all around me uh, really easily in a short amount of time. I love eating them. They're delicious. Uh, many ways to prepare them. If you guys remember from last year, if you might have heard some of the shows, I did uh, some of these smoked and did some of these in uh, fish spreads or pâtés. So we're going to see what we come up with. All right, be back. There you hear the sound of the scaler going to work on this uh, beautiful little rainbow trout. It's probably about uh, 14 inches, pretty decent for a uh, stocked rainbow trout. I think I'm going to do these a uh, couple ways, and of course I'll post the uh, recipes online on fishnerds.com. I think one, I'm going to keep it whole, just scale it and gut it, and then I'm going to season it. I think I'm going to go with the honey mustard dill seasoning. Get it all rubbed down nice and good. Uh, make some slits along the length of it, diagonal slits, so the, uh, the seasonings, the flavors get inside into the meat. And then uh, throw it on the grill. Probably take... Uh, 
about five minutes per side, I'd imagine, not much more than that. And uh, some people like wrapping them in aluminum foil with onions and peppers, which is fine too. I enjoy that sometimes, but I really like uh, the texture of the uh, of the meat of the fish when it comes out uh, when it's grilled, when it's grilled straight on the grill. I think on the other one, I am going to make steaks out of it, like you'd see swordfish steaks, but there'll be little rainbow trout steaks, and then season them up nice and dredge them in some uh, flour and egg wash and then deep fry them so they're nice and crispy a little spicy super tasty and uh, that'll be a um, wonderful treat as well I think they'll, uh, they'll definitely both be um, excellent these were just caught a couple hours ago and this is uh, gonna be fun we'll be back with more and there you hear it. So what I decided to do, folks, was uh, very simple and it's super tasty. Um, I cut these up into steaks like you would a swordfish, I said earlier. Um, I posted a picture of it. Not a lot of people have seen trout done that way, but it's really cool. So what I did is I have this, um, this uh, fry mix, a seasoning mix for frying stuff. It's a uh, Filipino uh, powder that we get from the uh, Asian store. It's really tasty. So we just roll the fish in that, again, frying it at 375 degrees, probably for about, uh, I don't know, maybe eight minutes until it's got a nice color to it, and we like it nice and crispy. My mouth's watering, as you can tell. I'm starving. This looks so good. So that's what we're going to do, folks. I'll post the recipe online. Thanks, everybody. Have a great one. Bye. The doctor is in our oh, so lucky that doc martin is part of this show she's been answering our nerdy fish questions for years and of course she's always happy to answer listener questions if you have questions for the doc you can email me at clay at fishnerds.com or call our fish nerds hotline 607-378-FISH and leave voicemail and we will get the answers to you testing testing can you hear me now? And it seems like I'm registering pretty well. Alright. Hello, hello, Fish Nerd Nation. This is Doc Martin. And I am going to talk to you guys about taxonomy. And I know that the reputation of taxonomy is one of just pure excitement. It's almost more exciting than sports. Am I right? I mean, who doesn't want to talk about classification? <laughs> okay, so first of all, um, so taxonomy is should be easy, but it isn't. Uh, it turns out that people tend to disagree on where things should be put. And since we don't yet have everything genetically understood and quantified yet, um, things change so um but mostly what i want to cover is a, a brief a brief introduction into the basics of taxonomy and answer the question you know what is a fish uh, and then what is not a fish like starfish not a fish and actually scientists prefer the term sea star instead to avoid confusion just like that um, so, first, let's go over the 
very basic classification scheme, um, and that is domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So those are the titles uh, of the major groups. Uh, domain, that's the biggest one. So then since that's number one, that covers every living thing on Earth, ever, period, the end. And then as you go down, you get smaller and smaller groups until you get to species, which is just one very specific thing. So it's a hierarchical system. Uh, and if you can't remember it, my favorite uh, my favorite way to remember it, that's how I teach it in class, is um, so domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, using those same first letters, we can create a fun new name, uh, dumb kids playing chess on freeway get smashed. <laughs> so usually that uh, entices a few giggles from my class and it helps them remember it better. So, uh, in domain, there are three main domains, uh, bacteria, archaea, and eukaryota. Uh, eukaryota is what animals are in, like fishes and like us. Um, so, when we go down to kingdom, there are, depending on who you ask, I will use the traditional U.S. Um, consensus, which there are six kingdoms. Animalia, plantae, fungi, protistae, eubacteria, and archaeobacteria. Um, animalia sounds like animals, and that's exactly what that kingdom is. So from kingdom, we get to phylum. So there's lots of different phyla. Um, I'm not going to list them all here. Uh, we are in phylum chordata. And so uh, phylum chordata has some pretty cool characteristics. Um, there are several kinds. Sorry, I've got a big stack of notes here. I'll, I'll post a picture of my desk so you can appreciate all the stuff that I'm wading through. Um, but basically in phylum chordata, there are several characteristics. I'm going to cover five, five big ones. Uh, and everybody in chordata has this, uh, has these characteristics at some point. That doesn't mean they have to have it forever, but at some point in their development, they have several of these, but not all of them. So already, this is already complicated. Um, so the first one is they have a notochord. So this is just, uh, it's kind of rod-like, it's semi-rigid, stiffens the body, um, and in, that's definitely present at some stages of development. Again, some of these guys will lose that, so keep that in mind. Um, most of them have paired limbs. Of course, if you guys are familiar with hagfish and lamprey, you already know that not all of them have paired limbs. Um, a post-anal tail. Um, and that's kind of fun because even you people had a post-anal tail and gill slits, but you were teeny, 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 tiny. And then those went away. So gill slits is the next one. Um, and then a ventral heart. So uh, ventral, if you are sitting or standing wherever you are, dorsal would be your back, hence the fish's dorsal fin. So ventral is going to be your belly or your underside. So they have a ventral heart. Okay, I know this is very fun. Um, then it gets interesting. So I have two books that I use as main references. 
and uh, the one is uh, Moyle Fishes and uh, Fishes and Introduction to Ichthyology in 2004, and the other one is Nelson's Fishes of the World, published in 2016. So um, I learned ichthyology using the Moyle book, um, but I bought the Fishes of the World book because I'm a huge nerd and I like to stay up to date on how everything is classified. So given that, um, in the phylum chordata, Moyle's book says that there's the subphylum mixini, that's your hagfish, there's subphylum vertebrata, and then there's kind of three main classes of fishes. So class Cephalospomorphi, which is going to have the order Petromyzontiformes, that's your lamprey, class Chondrichthys, sharks and rays, and then class Osteichthys, all your other bony fishes, all of them. Um, Nelson does a little, something a little bit different, so we stay in phylum chordata, but this time he has subphylum craniata, and then class mixinis, which is the hagfish, and then infraphylum vertebrata, then class petromyzontida, class chondrichthys, and class osteichthys. Subtle differences. So you already noticed that I gave you that sweet list, the domain, kingdom, phylum, class, family, order, genus, species, and I'm using other words like infraphylum and subphylum and all these other crazy things. So just to show you and give you a little taste of how much we've complicated things, um, from domain, kingdom, and phylum, there actually are more subdivisions, and I'm just going to list them in order. So phylum, subphylum, infraphylum, superclass, grade, class, subclass, infraclass, division, subdivision, super cohort, cohort, superorder, series, subseries, order, family, genus, species. <sighs> so taxonomy is fun and it's complicated, but I thought um, what would be more fun than <laughs> making taxonomy a little bit more palatable for us? Uh, so I wrote... I wrote a poem, and that's what I'm going to do to have you guys learn about taxonomy. So, welcome to my world of water. Some water's cold and some much hotter. This water, this water is salty, that water is not, but you'll find fishes in every spot. Linnaeus was a scientist. He created the systematic list of how to name and group the droves so people know what are those, and the name is the same around the globe. Kingdom, phylum, class, then order. Groups start out large and then get smaller. Family, genus, and finally species. Groups within groups makes it easy. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, <laughs> fishes are in kingdom animalia. Some do look royal like they have on regalia. Phylum chordata is next on the board. Animals belong here because they have a notochord. Chordata have other neat characteristics as well, a ventral heart, gill slits, paired limbs, and a tail. Humans are chordates, a fact that will thrill. When you were tiny, you had a tail and gills. Taxonomy isn't always so clear. There are subgroups and details we won't discuss here. After phylum chordata, the classes beginny. Class one out of four is called mixini. We call them hagfish colloquially. They cover everything in slime and feed at the bottom of the sea. They barely have eyes and don't have a jaw. They can escape shark bites by wriggling, which leaves me in awe. 
Originally, scientists thought hagfish were worms. Their slimy nature makes some folks squirm. But the slime has uses that might be savvy. It protects like Kevlar and might be used by the Navy. A difficult word to say is the next class. If we break it into parts, the first is petro, like gas. Then myzon, which sounds like I own the sun. And tada, like after a magic trick I have done. Petromyzontida is the class of the lamprey. These fish are tubular in more than one way. They are born in freshwater streams and stay there for a while. Their mouths are round, so they don't really smile. After some time, certain species flee and spend their adult life in a large lake or the sea. Lampreys get a bad rap because of how they eat. Parasitic ones suck the blood out of meat. Unfortunately for the lamprey just living their lives, the critters they tend to eat get hurt or die. Those food critters are often the fun kind to wrangle, so their death upsets fisheries economy and the angler. But lampreys are useful and not just inane. Neurobiologists use them to study the brain. How they determine sex is a unique revolution. Mammals use genes, reptiles bask in the sun, but the lamprey solution is an unusual one. A lamprey is male if its birthplace was bare, and a female if there was food everywhere. Enough about lamprey, we must pass. Chondrichthys is the third class. Ichthys is fishes in fancy Latin, and cond means they have a cartilaginous skeleton. One group of fish in this class are the chimeras. There are about 48 species, nicknamed ghost sharks, to scare us. The word chimera means fabulous monster. Their fins are like wings, their nose is fleshies, fleshy and pointed, and their tail is like a string, whip-like and jointed. These mysterious fishes live deep in the ocean. What scientists know of them is mostly a notion. They are covered in scales. They can see in near dark. These crafty creatures are related to sharks. Which brings us to our next group of chondrichthys. Sharks, skates, and rays. There are about 1150. Some humans believe sharks mean to harm us, but they are just gentle giants, not viciously murderous. Sharks and rays detect prey even at amounts very teeny, with a specialized structure, ampullae of Lorenzini. A bunch of jelly-filled pores cover their heads that they pick up electrical signals from prey that soon will be dead. Sharks and rays smell blood, too, but that for that they have noses, which are never used for breathing, just for smelling the roses. And now it is time for the class which is last. What fishes are these? Do they live in the trees? What if I answered yes, and those kind live near Belize? The class, the last class of fish do things rather tricky. We call this huge group class Osteichthys. Oste means bone, and remember before, we already learned what Ichthys stands for. This class is diverse and includes most fish on Earth, coelacanths, bikers, sturgeon, and perch. Lungfish, bowfin, and freshwater eels, moon eyes, herring, and paddlefish eating tiny plankton as meals. Mores, minnows, salmon, and char. A pirate's favorite fish is the gar. <laughs> Loaches, packers, tetra, and piranhas. Catfish that wear armor, jacks, and pompanos. One species of perch looks like it's wearing pajamas. Suckers, mud minnows, gobies, and mullet. Fish that can fly, wouldn't you know it? Pikes, flounders, parrotfish, and wrasses. Pirate perch have their heads right next to their cloaca. Cichlids, barracuda, and garamis. In seahorses, the daddies give birth, not the mommies. Top minnows, squirrelfishes, and live bearers like guppies. Pup 
toadfish are fish that look nothing like puppies. Toadfishes, silversides, halfbeak, and remora, oarfish, anglerfish, gobies, and more. That was a long list, but there are many more fishes. After all, something must fill all the niches. Humans get quite a lot from our fishy, fishy friends. They keep water healthy on which life depends. Fish scales are used in makeup and shampoo. Their skin can be used to heal a wound. Some fish are quite tasty and some produce sound. Fish that migrate long distances move nutrients around. Fish do lots of things. Some swim in large schools. Did you know they are smart enough to use tools? Some fishes are huge and some minuscule. But the most important thing is, fish are cool. <laughs> so, there is your brief poetic lesson in taxonomy um, with hopefully just enough information that you can kind of get some idea of why we classify things in the way that we do and different things that make fish fish. Um, thanks again for the question. I'm always excited to do research for you guys uh, and I hope that my creative way to uh, answer this one was not too boring for you so um, if you have a question you can always email the fish nerds or you can contact me directly on the fish nerds uh, podcast Facebook page and I will catch you guys on the flip side peace out And we also have Andrew Lewin. Andrew is the host of the Speak Up for the Blue podcast. And he does a segment for us called Speak Up for the Effin' Blue. We need to push more into the conservation world. And Andrew is helping us get that voice out there. If you don't listen to his show, you should. It's a Speak Up for Blue podcast, anywhere podcasts are found. Hey guys, welcome to the Speak Up for Effin' Blue segment here on the Fish News Podcast, or Fish Nerds Podcast, sorry, gotten my news mixed up. Uh, I'm Andrew Lewin, the host of the Speak Up for Blue Podcast, and if you haven't heard recently for the past four or five weeks, I've been uh, providing the Fish Nerds audience with uh, some updates on what's happening with ocean conservation. And this week we're going to discuss uh, two things that are happening in Washington, D.C., but have uh, really affected people all over the world, really. Uh, one is the Earth Optimism Summit, and the other is the March for Science. So we're going to talk bo about both of those pretty briefly, uh, but if you want more information, you can always listen to the Speak Up for Blue podcast or check out their websites. Uh, all right, so let's talk about the Earth Optimism Summit and why it's important. So this summit is going on in Washington, D.C. this weekend over Earth Day. Earth Day is Saturday. Uh, and it's going, uh, it starts on the, uh, April 21st and ends April 23rd. So a quick weekend, but essentially what's, what it's all about is people from all over the world who are coming to talk about their success stories in conservation. So optimistic stories of hope in conservation. And the reason why this is happening is because as you may or may not know, there's a lot of stuff going on in with the oceans, there's a lot of stuff going on with the world uh, from an environmental perspective. And we hear in the media, we hear from scientists a lot of times, a lot of doom and gloom type news. You know, we hear climate change effects, you know, the sea level consequences, uh, storm surges, damages from storms. We hear, uh, you know, ocean acidification that's destroying oyster reefs and coral reefs all over the place. Uh, we hear the, the Great Barrier Reef that is bleaching and may or may not be dead. 
you know, all these these really depressing stories. And we've noticed as a scientific community and conservation community that a lot of people don't want to hear about doom and gloom stories all the time because they give up. They give up on, on the ocean. They give up on the earth if they keep hearing, well, we're losing this. We've lost this amount of, of habitat. We've lost this fish. You know, this fish can't be fished anymore for a while. All that kind of stuff. And it, and it, it affects you, right? You're not always going to. When you when you read the news, the regular news, and you see all these people being killed and, and wars developing and everything like that, you know, you, you, you feel awful after. We've all seen news clips and stuff where you're just like, that's awful. Like, why don't they show something good? And that's the same thing with conservation. So Nan- Dr. Nancy Knowlton uh, and a, a number of colleagues have, have come up with this Earth Optimism Summit, which is the beginning of um, a long sort of line of, you know, putting conservation in the light, you know, showing the brighter side of conservation, showing that people who do conservation all over the world are having success in either protecting a habitat or protecting a species or managing their fisheries better. And we need to tell the public this. Uh, so this summit is not just for people in science, people in conservation. This summit is really for everybody. And I think it's going to be one of those uh, studies that's just going to be absolutely amazing, or one of those summits are going to be absolutely amazing. And I'd love for all of you guys uh, to check it out because it's going to be, like, I'm looking at some of the lists. There's Dr. Michelle LaRue who does uh, Antarctic research on iconic species like emperor penguin and Weddell seals and availability of sea ice. Uh, they're talking to Jeremy Jackson, who's a, a well-known coral reef biologist. Uh, you know, they're talking to just so many people. It's just absolutely amazing. And if you go to the uh, the uh, website, earthoptimism.si.edu, you'll be able to find more information on that. I love this 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 idea of a summit, not only as a starting point, but to look at it in the future, to really, for me as someone who communicates science, it's much easier to communicate success stories and provide hope for people while not ignoring the doom and gloom, but mixing it in so that people can understand that, hey, if we do this, if we work on a specific project, we can, we can do some good. So that's the Earth Optimism Summit. That website is HTTPS. Don't forget, not the regular HTTP, uh, earthoptimism.si.edu. It's actually at the Smithsonian Institute, uh, which is obviously one of the best institutes in the world. Uh, so yeah, so it'd be great to, for you guys to check that out. The other thing I want to talk about is the March for Science. Now, uh, some of you may or may not heard of the March for Science. It's uh, very similar, and I got, it got the idea from uh, the Women's March back in January, uh, where a number of women and men went to Washington, D.C. to march for women's rights uh, with the whole political, um, uh, I guess, the whole, uh, uh, I can't even think of the word. Anyway, the whole political idea and, and with with Trump getting in president and the stuff that came out during the election about how he treats women and so forth, uh, a lot of women were worried about what he was going to do. And they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to, he, they weren't going to stand for the stuff that they heard before. Uh, now, the March for Science are a number of scientists, uh, I think there's going to be quite a bit of scientists, who are marching on Earth Day, April 22nd, in Washington, D.C., and probably many places around the world. I know there are a number of functions or marches going on in Canada, where I live, 
Uh, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different marches within the U.S. Uh, the idea of the March for Science is to tell uh, the U.S. government and governments all over the world that science is crucial in making political decisions and making decisions that will affect policy, that will affect the citizens of that country. In this case, when we're marching, when people are marching on Washington, D.C., they're marching uh, to talk to the Trump administration to say, look, you're ignoring climate change science. You're ignoring a lot of other science on pesticide use, uh, looking, ignoring a lot of science. It's just on atmospheric and air quality, water quality. And it's time that you bring <clears throat> science back into the mix. And you need to, you know, not saying go full out, full blown science, but use science as part of your decision making um, process to understand what's happening with the earth. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very good concept. This is a peaceful march, hopefully. Uh, it's a peaceful march where you're getting not only just scientists that are coming out, but you're getting, you know, other people who just understand that science plays a big role in, poli- in making policies and making regulations and ensuring that we have enough fish to fish and ensuring that we'll have good water quality. We're going to have great uh, air quality. And it's, and it's important. These regulations work. They work at making sure that our environment is safe, right? They may not all be perfect, but for the most part, they have worked. As an example, the Magnuson-Stevenson's Act. They, that act is basically a fisheries act, is to protect fisheries. That act, in part, I was doing an interview with um, Chris Lowe, Dr. Chris Lowe, who is a uh, shark biologist um, in, over at University of California in, in Long Beach. And he was telling me that th- that act allowed seal populations to rebound, uh, for sea lion populations in California to rebound from almost going extinct in the early 1900s. Not only did that happen, but you had the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which stopped the harvest of sea lions, the hunting of sea lions. With the rebound of sea lion, with the rebound of the fisheries from the Magnuson-Stevenson Act, then you had the the rebound of the sea lions from the Marine Protect Marine Mammal Protection Act. You have now an increase in great white sharks along the the California coast. So, and that which is an endangered species. So those acts allowed for that for those for those sharks to rebound that population of sharks to rebound and sort of you know keep that food chain that web the the the, the food web stable, right? So these acts really work, and it's science that puts those acts into place, or is part of the process that puts those acts into place. So it's important that, you know, we need science in politics. We need science in policy making. And there's a, there's a bit of a, a controversy going around with the March for Science. And this is how I look at it. The controversy is people don't, people say that science is unbiased. When you do a, when you do the scientific process properly, it is unbiased. You're not leaning towards you know a liberal point of view. You're not leaning towards a conservative point of view. It's just this is the science. This is the math. Deal with it. Let's interpret it and let's let's deal with it. The uh, with with this march for science, people are worried that with the the Republican dominated the Republican dominated government on all through on all levels. Uh, is going to take it as this is a left-leaning political scheme to for the Democrats to hold some power. But that's not what it is. All this is saying is, look, if you're going to make decisions, we don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. If you're going to make decisions, use science to help you make those decisions. Don't ignore science 
to benefit your political campaign of supporting the people who put you in power, right? And by that mean the people who funded you to help you get in power, you know, go with the voters. Think of the voters by providing them with the best information possible and providing them with the best policies possible, right? That's essentially what the March for Science is doing. Uh, and of course, there's some other issues. There's a lot of issues within the science community in terms of gender equality, in terms of careers, building a career and funding schemes and everything like that. Um, but those need to be addressed within the science community. Those definitely have to be talked about. But this message is all about putting science back on this pedestal, putting science in the process of making decisions and not ignoring them for you know business gain or political gain. So that is uh, my update for, uh, it's not really an ocean news update, but it's what's going on in Washington, D.C. I, if you do believe that science should be, you know, if science-based policy should be in, the, in government, uh, please consider marching at March for Science uh, or supporting people by supporting them on, on, um, on, on, on your social medias and, and over the internet by putting up the hashtag March for Science and I support you. Uh, that would really be appreciated. Um, and if you guys have any questions, you can always uh, contact me or, you know, contact Clay. And uh, I'd be more than happy to, uh, you know, say anything. I'm on the Facebook group. If you're, if, you're on the, if you're on the Fish Nerds Facebook group, I am on there. And I'd be more than happy to, to, to answer any kind of questions you have. You can also hit me at Twitter at Speak Up for Blue. Uh, and that's it for your uh, speak up for effing blue news update. I hope you guys have uh, a great week and I will see you next week. Back to you, Clay. So that's it. You've listened to a whole bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Of course, I always like to thank our families for supporting us while we podcast, go on fishing quests and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash fishnerds and help us crowdfund this show. Big fat thanks to Doc Martin, Andrew Lewin from Speak Up for Blue, Hugo Medeiros, Clarence Felder, and Chris Weatherhead at actorstheaterofsc.org. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerd spawn early and often. Avoid free lunches with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get.